All right, so as we began our service, we are in Matthew chapter 19 today, verses 1 through 12. That's page 914 if you're using a pew Bible in front of you. Um, we're going to be discussing what is very clearly a hot-button topic. It's, uh, it's not exactly, like I said, the text that I'd like uh, to, to do right before I'm about to be gone for a couple weeks. Um, but we began with, with verse 1 of chapter 19, taking, taking us into a new epic, a different period of Jesus' earthly ministry um, from when he was going from Galilee into Judea. And it's important because Judea was the province that held Jerusalem. It was close enough to Jerusalem that the, uh, the, the most well-known Pharisees, the, the most well-trained Pharisees, would be housed. And so that's important, and Matthew includes that, because this whole section begins because Pharisees have come to test Jesus. Now, if we were to go to, uh, to chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, we would find that the same thing happened in the Sermon on the Mount. We would read that Jesus is teaching and some Pharisees come to test him. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, it was still early in Jesus' ministry. And uh, that testing probably would have been just to determine his theology, just to discover where Jesus sat. But this one's different. This one probably happened in order to corner Jesus. Either he was going to contradict Moses on one hand, or maybe he would involve himself in the controversy between Herod and Herodias, the same controversy that ultimately got John the Baptist killed. And so these Pharisees are most likely coming with nefarious purposes, trying to ruin Jesus. Now, as we go through our text today, I really want us to remember that there's a cultural background to what is discussed here that our culture does not necessarily grasp onto. It's not just that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and mess him up, but it's the whole conversation that they bring up and how they bring it up that's important for us to follow along with. But I brought up that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus because it really sets the tone for the next several chapters of, of Matthew. And it actually culminates in Jesus in chapter 21, I believe it is, uh, really denouncing the Pharisees in general. Because what ends up happening is that the Pharisees, as agents of Satan, are trying to disqualify Christ, the only truly righteous person to ever walk this earth, instead of listen to tr listening to truth and being corrected. And I, I caution us to not be those same agents of Satan that would rather uh, denounce what God has said because of maybe things we've learned or, or things that we've heard before. When we listen to what's proclaimed out of God's word, um, that they would correct us. And I say that with caution because there's times that I read the Bible and I say, I'm not sure I really get that because that contradicts something that I've read before or heard before. How does that fit into this, this general theology? And so reading the Bible means that we should constantly be checking our theology at the cover and reading God's word for what it says. 
and trying to grasp it, not being like the Pharisees. So uh, the way they phrase the question, they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Uh, quite literally, it could be translated for any and every reason. And the, the way that they say that reflects one school of Pharisaism. There were two general schools of Pharisaism at the time. There was, there was the school of Hillel, and there was the school of Shammai. And Hillel uh, essentially taught um, that, that men could divorce their wives for any and every reason, just like they say here. So chances are these Pharisees are either of the school of Hillel, right? Or they're trying to maybe show that Jesus is this uh, liberal, um, uh, this person on this liberal drift, this teacher on this liberal drift. They could have been of the school of Shammai, just trying to prove to the, the true Israelites around that Jesus was wrong. And I, I think maybe that, but that's speculation. But, but the school of Hillel, uh, took, took a, a misquote from, well, both of them really did. They took a misquote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. And if you were to turn to Deuteronomy 24 and read verses 1 to 4, specifically in verse, four, uh, verse 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. She departs out of the blah, 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 blah. Basically, they're saying, oh, look, Moses allows for divorce. And there's that statement, if he finds some indecency in her. The two schools understood that in two different ways. The school of Hillel basically tra uh, translated that in their minds to say, well, if this wife does anything that does not cause her husband happiness, then the husband can divorce the wife. Uh, one commentary said that this, this, this uh, was a teaching that taught that either real or imagined offenses could be brought to divorce. Uh, it's, it's, it's very often um, said that this could, be, uh, this, this could be if she burns the roast. And that's an accurate thing. A poorly cooked meal was something that would qualify a woman for divorce in the school of Hillel. And a man could divorce the wife. It's also important to remember, by the way, that this is always about the man divorcing the wife, not the wife divorcing the husband. That was completely unthinkable in, Jesus, in the culture of first century G Judaism. So uh, the women simply weren't even capable of divorcing men at the time. But, but the school of Hillel, again, understood something indecent as a poorly cooked meal, or if, if she was no longer attractive, and then maybe there was another attractive girl that was willing to marry the man, and therefore he could divorce his wife and marry that next woman, and that would be completely acceptable in the school of Hillel. Now, the school of Shammai was a little stricter, um, but men could still divorce their wives if they broke one of the rules of cultural conduct. Uh, the school of Shammai had this rule, this set of lists of, of cultural conduct uh, that if, if a woman were to violate, then the man would consider that viable reasons for divorce. Um, one, of the re one of the 
uh, conducts that would break the marriage covenant in the school of Shammai would be like the wife addressing a male guest in the home before she was spoken to. An example of what the rest of these schools of cultural conduct were like uh, could be thought of as maybe a wife, maybe like having a, having a dinner party and you have the whole, the whole party gathered and the wife doesn't want to do dishes at the end so she pops out the paper plates and sets them out. Be a violation of cultural conduct, right? You can't, you can't serve people on paper plates. It has to be the fine china. Or speaking of fine china, another, another general uh, rule applied would be maybe she brought out the, uh, the Christmas china instead of the Thanksgiving china. Boom. Viable reason for divorce. It has Santa on it, not a turkey. So those would be the sorts of reasons that the school of Shammai would authorize divorce. Divorce and remarriage specifically. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't agree with either school. He completely sidesteps it and gives this theological basis for why marriage actually should persist. He quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He says, uh, have you not read in verse, in verse 4? Have you not, that's, which is kind of an insult, uh, an insult to Pharisees, right? Of course the Pharisees have read. I'm going to move this. This is driving me absolutely nuts. It's feedbacking and it's making me angry. We'll see if that's better. The, of course the Pharisees have read Deuteronomy. That's the second law, right? So Jesus is kind of insulting them. He said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Hold fast means hold firmly with an, with an unbreakable grip. Think of it like, like somebody falling off a cliff and the person reaches out real fast and grabs. That's what the marital union is supposed to be like. It's supposed to be that every time something starts to go wrong in life, they quickly grasp onto each other and make sure that they're united. And the two shall become one flesh. Uh, they, uh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus concludes that thought. Jesus agrees with neither school. He says, look, marriage is supposed to be upheld. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So he, <laughs> so he, tr he makes very clear, was that me? Okay. <laughs> uh, so he makes very clear that marriage is meant to last a lifetime. The school of Hillel and Shammai are wrong. But Jesus then includes at the end, verse 9, he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's the, the sexual immorality is the Greek word, Greek word porneia, and we call that the exception clause. It's also in Matthew 5.32, and uh, I covered it back then, but I'm going to cover it in more detail this time. But Jesus is saying the only viable reason for divorce and remarriage that's grammatically linked would, would be this sexual immorality. 
So let's lay some groundwork before we really discuss the, uh, the exception clause here. Um, first, I want to I, I want to talk about Jesus's response in general. Uh, number one, God hates divorce. Malachi two six. If you open your Bible to the prophet Malachi chapter two verse six, it says, "I hate divorce," says the Lord. Ooh, that's really coming down. Men and women are married, and they're meant to remain united physically, emotionally, and intentionally for their entire lives. Marriage is not supposed to be broken. There's supposed to be no division. There's supposed to be no unfaithfulness. There's not supposed to be any of that. Because when a couple is wed, they're meant, to be, they're meant to remain wedded and united on like a united front together the rest of their lives. God hates divorce. But why does he hate divorce? This is rooted in God's union with Israel and the church. I'm going to put a little side note in there. That's one bride. That's not two brides. God is not a polygamist. Uh, the testimony of all of Scripture is that Israel is God's bride, the church is God's bride, and they are one thing united. Romans 11 puts it really well that the Gentiles are grafted into the promises of Israel, which includes this marriage supper. And if you were to turn to Revelation 19, you'd read about the one uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. There is one union, okay? One, one bride, one bride. I know it's weird for us guys sitting here to say, oh yeah, I'm the bride of Christ. Makes me feel like I'm something in our culture that's not right right now. But it's true. We dudes are the bride of Christ. Get over it. Anyway, so there is one bride, okay? And, and why does God hate divorce? It's because God values his union with his bride, and he's faithful to his bride at all times. So husbands ought to be faithful to their brides at all times. You know, one of my favorite passages to preach, I preach... At every wedding, I've done only two so far, so I can't really say every and say it's a whole lot. But if, if we turn to Ephesians 5, we read some of the most, I don't know, I want to say controversial uh, uh, sections or statements that, that's in the entirety of the Bible about marriage. And it starts off, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's usually the controversial part. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This is, again, just epitomizing that one flesh union, that they shall be one flesh, that the, the husband is meant to be the head, and therefore the body submits to what the head commands. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But then we read on. Husbands, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband's duty is infinitely greater than the wife's duty. The wife, the wife has to go along for the ride and has to submit and not be like Eve and usurp the, the, the head of the household, but the husband is supposed to love like Jesus. How did Jesus love his bride? He died for her. 
This is what a marriage is supposed to look like, friends. A marriage is supposed to look like a husband dying for his wife and a wife living in a way that submits to this, this, this sacrificial love that God has for his bride and the husband has for his wife. Paul continues on, and we don't need to go, go through it, but, but he, he talks about this beautiful image of, 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 the, of Jesus dying to present his bride in splendor, to wash her, to cleanse her with, with his word. That's what a marriage is meant to be. And that is not what, a marriage, what the marriage is being presented as in this question from the Pharisees. The Pharisees presented the question, remember, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? What are the reasons, Jesus? How, how, can, a, how can a husband leave his, leave his wife? None, essentially. The husband is supposed to keep dying for his bride. So God is faithful to his bride, therefore husbands ought to be faithful to their brides. That's the core of what Jesus is saying in verses 5 through 9. So what then is the problem with the Pharisees? How did they go so wrong? How did, how did Hillel and Shammai and their schools teach something so stupid that Jesus has to say, no guys, you're completely missing the point? Well, the ultimate issue is that they are misapplying and misunderstanding Deuteronomy 24. If you're able, I, I recommend opening to Deuteronomy 24 real quick. Um, if I could actually turn there. Oh my gosh, I keep going to Joshua instead of Deuteronomy. Anyway, if we, if we open to Deuteronomy 24, which again in the Pew Bibles, if you're going to cheat, is verse one, er, uh, page 184. This is what Moses writes. When... A man takes a wife and marries her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, so this is the continuation of that story. This woman who's been divorced has become another man's wife. And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, dude number one, if her, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That's the point. Moses is not saying, hey, divorce is totally fine. You can go ahead and do it. Some indecency, whatever, cast her out. Moses is not saying that this is right, that divorce is right. He's setting a precedent that the first husband who has buyer's remorse of sending her out on the first one should not take her back. Why? Because she's become another man's wife. Divorce is not in God's plan for marriage. Never has it been. And Jesus even applies that. He, he, he says that it's because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed or permitted you to divorce your wives. He's not, he's not saying that God permitted it. He's not saying that it's part of God's plan. He's saying that Moses allowed 
And Deuteronomy 24 is not an excuse to get divorced. Deuteronomy 24 is a, hey, you, first husband, don't remarry the wife that has already become somebody else's wife. That's weird. Don't do it. The Pharisees misunderstood the verses. They misapplied what Moses had said. And that often happens. Those, those who think they've mastered the law are often those who have misunderstood and misapplied it. Those who refuse to ever be corrected are probably the ones who have never understood it in the first place. And therefore, Jesus here was correcting the heart of the matter, the false teaching of, of Hillel and Shammai. He was not correcting Moses. He was in agreement with Moses. It was the schools of Hillel and Shammai that were trying to correct Moses. Now, also, in, the time, in this first century, it, again, this is about a man divorcing his wife. It was unthinkable that a wife would ever leave her husband for any reason. Why? Because the husband was the breadwinner and the wife was the homemaker. If she ever, ever decided to leave her husband, she was basically dooming herself to starvation. There was no hope for her in that culture. Therefore, she had to get remarried. But what the Pharisees had done is they had made women like objects that could be thrown away when something just didn't please them. And Jesus goes straight for the heart. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia, sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And adultery was a sin that, by the law, was punishable by death. Divorce was not, adultery was. So Jesus takes it to the next level, man. He says, those who leave their spouses except for this reason have committed a sin worthy of death. Now, what is that word porneia? Uh, I, I read my notes from Matthew 5 for the sermon we did, Matthew 5, it's 31 to 32. I read my notes, and I, I said that porneia is essentially adultery. And that's not wrong, but if you look at what the ESV translates this as in verse 9, uh, whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits Moikatai. That's the actual Greek word for uh, committing adultery, for, for being an adulterer. It, it was another word. It, it, it's not repeated. It doesn't say, except for porneia, uh, marries another, commits porneia. They're different words. And that's something I missed when I did Matthew 5, and something I caught this time. So I want to expand that definition. Well, while porneia essentially defined, maybe defined as adultery, that doesn't actually express the entire meaning of the word. Porneia, uh, which is a, a, a word of which we derive in our, in our culture from pornography, um, the irony of the word por pornographic is that it actually implies um, written or, or visible sexual immorality, right? Like that, that would be a way to, to think of it. The Greek word graphe just meant writings, and p 
porn is from the Greek word porneia, which means sexually immoral, so, so visible representations of, of sexual immorality. And Jesus says that this is cause, this is possible rationale for divorce. But the Greek word porneia has this giant swath of meanings that we just summarize, we, we gloss. Uh, in, in, when we translate words from one language to another, they, it often doesn't have the exact same meaning. For instance, the Japanese word she uh, means for or death. It, it means the it's same word. Same word means the same thing. But they mean it in different contexts. However, if I understand correctly, there's no fourth floor in hospitals in Japanese hospitals. But, but, because uh, then you'd be going to the death floor. But the, uh, the, the, point, the point is that a word can be glossed to mean something in another language, but it doesn't mean it grabs the whole range of meaning, right? Um, sometimes it's like, it's like if you had an entire rope and you grab just a section of the rope, it's still the same rope, but you're only holding a little bit of it. And so when we translate the word porneia as sexual immorality, it's accurate as a gloss. But what all the meanings have in common is they, they have an, intentional, uh, an intentionality to sexual unfaithfulness. So, so somebody who is unmarried and watching pornographic material, yeah, that's porneia, right? Like that's, that's intentional sexual unfaithfulness. But it can also mean the objectification of women. That can be porneia. Or the objectification of men. That can be porneia. And so when Jesus is applying it here, and the reason that the apostles or the disciples get a little defensive in verse 10 is because it, it means a lot. It, it, to, to summarize it a little bit, porneia can be the devaluing of the humanity of a spouse, uh, where intimacy, what should be intimacy, is replaced with objectification and or abuse. That would, that would all fall under the swath of porneia. An example in one of the commentaries would be if, uh, let's, say, let's say a wife uh, didn't wanted something really bad and said, well, I'm just not going to sleep with my husband. I'm going to sleep in another bed. So, so he can't do anything to me uh, because I want what I want. Therefore, I'm not going to give him what he wants until he gives me what I want. That's porneia. That's sexual immorality. And if you think about it, even though the commentary gave an example of what may happen in a marriage, what Jesus is applying here seems to apply more for men than it does women. It is more common, even in our culture today, for men to be sexually unfaithful than it is for women to be sexually unfaithful. And I'm pretty sure the same was generally true in Jesus' day because we still have that same sinful desire, the same fallen nature, and the same general hearts and attitudes. We're a little tamer than the Greek culture. So I think the disciples get a little defensive because they realize that might apply to them more than it applies to their wives. 
So in general, porneia, sexual immorality here, we should think of it like this. We should think of it as a mistreatment of marital intimacy or even the abuse of a person who's meant to be intimate or whose relationship should be intimate in God's design. So mistreatment of a spouse is a grotesque sin. However, that mistreatment happens. Nowadays, we have this wonderful term, gaslighting. Gaslighting means to convince someone that something happened, but it didn't really happen. That's porneia. Gaslighting is porneia. Physical abuse, porneia, because it's, it's the devaluing of, of a person's personhood and treating them as a punching bag. Or, uh, in the case of emotional abuse or, or even psychological abuse, also porneia, because that union is supposed to be intimate. It's supposed to be shared. It's supposed to be united. It's supposed to be a union. And any sort of division or unfaithfulness, porneia. So if a man is abusing his wife or if a wife is abusing her husband, which, by the way, does happen, um, they're committing porneia. And in those situations, honestly, divorce might actually be permissible for the safety of the humanity of the abused victim. But before I travel down that road, I want to remind us, God still hates divorce. So if someone's in an abusive relationship, there should actually be a period where there's an attempt to reconcile, there's an attempt to bring repentance... Uh, when I was in college, we had, to, uh, we had this class. Uh, it was Ministry to Women, and all pastoral students had to take this class. And there were certain books that we had to read, and there were certain assignments we had to do. But one of the assignments that was most useful, in my opinion, was this construction of a plan if you find out about abuse in a, in a marital relationship in your family, or in your church family. And in it, I'm not going to quote myself, but in it I had this basically four-step plan that at worst resulted in divorce. It was a period of counsel, it was a period of separation, where, where the victim would be removed, probably the children removed, and they would stay with an elder in the church, or, or maybe a respected member in the community to create a safe house in order to keep this person safe. You would keep that location's uh, a secret from the, from the husband or the wife, whoever the abuser was. And then you would attempt this counsel of reconciliation and repentance. But what happens when there's so much desire to sin that there's no repentance? Well, that's when divorce might be permissible. But God hates divorce. We should not even consider that in our minds. We should consider the hope of repentance and reconciliation so that this text doesn't apply to people. Think of Adam's joy, right? So, so Adam is there and there's no helper suitable to him. He looks at a cow and he goes, not it. He looks at, a, he looks at an ox, not it either. He looks at a dog, man's best friend, and goes, no. Then he looks at cats and he's like, no. <laughs> not, not even a little, right? 
And then God, in a loving fashion, takes a bone from his flesh and he forms woman. He forms this, this, this wonderful woman, Eve. And what, is, what does Adam say? Does he, go, does he go, finally, God, oh my goodness, it's been so long, I've been waiting. No, he declares a praise. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then Moses, or God ultimately, ordains this statement. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's what a marriage is supposed to look like. Divorce is not in God's design. It's not. And because of the hardness of the Israelite's heart, Moses permitted it. And then Jesus closes with this last little bit, right? Remember I said the disciples get defensive. Look at verse 10. The disciples, not the Pharisees, the disciples said to him, if such is the case with a, uh, of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Wow. Wow. Man, if I were Jesus, I would have slapped him. Like that is... Wow. Like, <laughs> I think, they, again, they get defensive because, frankly, this is the, the, the porneia is more common to man than it is woman. And then Jesus says, but, he said, or, but Jesus says to him, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. The disciples were right. It can be better not to marry. If, if the disciples sitting there, standing there, responded to what Jesus said and said, if that's the case, better not to marry. What's Jesus saying? Hey, buds, you're right. Your attitude sucks. You are exactly the type of person that should probably refrain. Eunuch is somebody who literally would have their, their, their genitalia cut off or severed or damaged so that they could not engage in that marital union. So Jesus is saying you're right. And in this case, remarriage, remarriage might not be the best option. Paul puts it really well in 1 Corinthians 7. He says uh, to, the, to the unmarried, and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So let's pose an example. Non-Christian couple gets divorced. Uh, may, maybe, maybe it's been three divorces, right? And then the husband comes to faith in Christ and he meets a lady in church and decides that he's, he, he really likes her and he's burning with passion. In the back of his mind, he's constantly thinking about this woman and he just can't get her out of his mind. Well, then Paul would probably condone that marriage. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single, but... If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Why? Because 
before Christ, our marriage is a marriage is not seen in the same way. There might be no chance of reconciliation. There might be no hope of turning back to that last union. But it's better for them to remain single. Paul goes on to describe at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, uh, he, he says so helpfully that the, the person who is married has their mind split between this world and heaven, but the person who is unmarried can focus solely on the things of the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, if you're single or if you've gone through divorce, it's good to remain unmarried. But it may also be permitted for you to seek remarriage lest you, lest you be tempted and burn with passion. So in closing, divorce is an ugly thing. It's not in God's plan. It's not supposed to happen. Moses did not say, hey, it's good to uh, give a certificate of divorce, which is essentially what the Pharisees say. You know, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? No, 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 no. He permitted it. But divorce should not be the first thing that enters into somebody's mind when the wife sets out paper plates for a fine dinner or, or, or when, when views of a, of a more attractive woman appear. Or Divorce should not be something that enters into our minds. You, somebody has an argument, they have a, they have a debate, there shouldn't be somebody saying, you know what, I'm going to divorce you. This is too much. I can't take it. That is not God's design. That is sin. There needs to be repentance. The couples that, that argue and fight constantly, divorce shouldn't be an option. Counseling should be an option. But in extreme cases, cases of danger, cases where porneia is present, where the destruction of intimacy between man and woman is, is, is prevalent and is being perpetrated and is unrepentant, where, where a spouse is being abused, whether mentally or, or physically, because that, by the way, is not suffering for the case of righteousness. That's torture. In those cases, though God despises divorce, there's good news because, because that person has already committed divorce. You know, I said that to somebody who was considering divorce in a really extreme case. Uh, the, the, I was asked, you know, should I, should, should I leave them? And in this case, I, I assured the person, it sounds like this person has already, already committed divorce with what they're doing to you. You'd just be putting it on paper. God despises divorce. God's bride, the church, is often unfaithful. Yet he still remains faithful to her. This is a wonderful thing, and there's, there's beautiful application of redemption for us hidden in that principle. But friends, the witness of the Bible for a couple, uh, for a person suffering from the sin of pornea from their husband or wife, is not to remain in torture. There's nothing in the Bible about that. Nothing. Not a single thing. 
I don't think any of the few of you in this room are in that situation. But if you're in the, but if somebody watching online or if somebody you know is in this situation, you can go and tell them God does not want you to be tortured. We need to get you safe. We need to get you some counseling. We need to free you from the danger. This is not right. God hates sin. God punishes the wicked. God hates divorce because it violates his relationship with his church. But God does not like it when men do not treat their wives as the weaker vessel, so says Peter, as somebody who needs to be protected and guarded and, and cared for and loved and cherished. God hates that too. What amazing grace God has for those who are stuck, are stuck in those situations. And it does not involve continuing to take it. Let's pray and close with our last song. Heavenly Father, we have come to a text that is not easy. It's not a fun thing to do, uh, to, to talk about. But your son was approached by men trying to trap him, to disqualify him uh, from, from being focused on that which you have declared. And Father, you gave your son the right words. And your son knew the right words because he knew what you meant with them. He, he knew what, your, what, what the Spirit had inspired for Moses to write. And he knew where the Pharisees had erred. God, I pray that we would do the same thing, that we would have that same, that same mind united uh, in, 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 a, in a, a fight against the pornea in our culture, the pornea that our neighbors might suffer. And I pray that you would let us be, be witnesses of your grace and your mercy in those circumstances. Give us the strength to stand against when weak men beat their wives, or when, when misguided women beat their husbands, or anything around that. Lord, I thank you that you hate, you hate when people violate what marriage is supposed to be. So God, please let us witness the truth and be agents of grace, not agents of Satan. In your name. Amen. A couple, uh, couple weeks ago, I was reading an article about how to tell if your church is dying or dead. And the question that the author raised was, was what's the authority in your church? Is it good speaking? Is it uh, gimmicks? Is it fun? Or is it the word of God? And if it's the word of God, then you know that your church is alive, even though it may be small. And I come to a passage like this, knowing that it's not something that I want to talk about, something that I would much rather avoid. And I remember that God's word is the authority in this church, and not me, not my choice, not what I want to say. And so I try and proclaim it as, as God has declared it.
So may we not seek divorce, may we not delight in divorce, but may we also remember that there is grace for the person who is suffering. Amazing grace. Go in peace, saints.